that story has grown with the telling over the last 30 years. Um, what I actually said was, you're dead, and we're back. Uh, um, yeah, uh, two more, uh, Tam known here as Tamerlane, was, uh, he, he literally, his goal was to exterminate Christianity from Central Asia, and he succeeded. He killed every Christian in the area in the 14th century. And I am happy to tell you that there are now churches all around his tomb. This man who attempted to get rid of, of the gospel there. It's good to be with you. Um, thank you for the invitation. Uh, this, is, this is fun for me. I did actually grow up down in Miami. Um, you've already heard that I went to Duke, which means that football season was usually a fairly discouraging time for me. Uh, so at the risk of antagonizing half the room, I'll tell you, having grown up in Miami, I grew up as a Florida State fan. So that's still who I cheer for uh, during football season. But let's get to vastly more important things. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 23 to 31. Oh, and by the way, very important thing left out of, of, of my introduction. Uh, my favorite role is that I am the, the husband of, of Catherine. My next favorite role is that I am the father of two children, both of whom were born in Central Asia, which now makes me the grandfather of a two-and-a-half-year-old boy and an eight-month-old girl who obviously are the most delightful grandchildren in the universe. And all of you who are grandparents know exactly what I mean. All the hype about grandparenting is true. It's, it's all true. It's absolutely glorious. Anyway, let's move to the scriptures. Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, anyone who presumes to think that he's adequate to the task of bringing your word to your people is a fool. And I confess to you right now that I'm not adequate, uh, that I am desperately dependent on you. But Father, I thank you that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to record these words is also the Holy Spirit who lives in me and in everyone else who, who names the name of Jesus. And I pray that your Spirit would teach us now. And I pray, Father, that we would understand the text, but I pray we do more than that. I pray that we would love your word, that we would obey your word. And that we would obey with joyful and cheerful hearts. 
So, Father, I pray you would use this time not just to inform our intellects, but also to transform our lives. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you can tell a lot about a Christian by the way he or she prays. Our prayer lives reflect our understanding of who God is and who we are. They reflect our value system. And so I'd ask you, as you look at this passage, to ask yourself this question. What are you praying for? Analyze the contents of your usual prayers. Now, hopefully, prayer is something that you do regularly. It's a normal, active part of your life. And hopefully, your prayers include a healthy dose of worship of God, of of thanksgiving for the things that He's done, and of confession of your sins. But look specifically at the requests you make of God. When you're at that point in your prayers, when you ask things of God, what do you ask Him for? Because these things reflect what your mind and your affections are set on. They reflect what you value. That's assuming, of course, that you have an appropriately high view of the power of God and of his ability and willingness to answer prayer. But the things you pray about indicates the things you think about and the things you want to see happen. I once heard a veteran missionary say that we tend, especially in churches in the West, to pray more to keep the saints out of heaven than to get sinners in. And now, it is very appropriate to pray for the hospital list. But, but ask yourself, do I pray mostly or even only for the needs of those who are already saved, along with my own needs? Or do I also fervently pray for the salvation of those who are still lost? So the question is, what about us? What are we praying for? Our passage this morning is about a prayer meeting. One of the first recorded prayer meetings in the life of the early church. Not the very first, but it's early on. And what we see the early church praying for tells us a lot about what they valued and what they were doing. Now, this story will prove to be fairly typical in the life of the early church. They shared the gospel, they got in trouble for doing so, and then they responded by praying. So we're going to look at this, at this time at two things. First, would you have gotten yourself into this situation to begin with? As you look at your life, are you the sort of person who would get in trouble because you're bold in sharing the gospel? And then at the end of the situation, what would you have instinctively prayed and asked God to do? Now, to begin with, let's rehearse the story. It's, it's one that those of you who have been in church for a long time are probably familiar with, but others may not. And it never hurts to remind ourselves of the setting, the context of the passage we're considering. So Peter and John were two of the leaders of the early church. And they were going to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem about 3 p.m. to pray. Apparently, 3 p.m. was a standard, normal prayer time in the life of the temple at that, at that time. They came in through one of the gates, or several gates into the temple, and they came in through the one that was known as the beautiful gate. And as they do, they see a sight they have probably seen countless times. They see a man who has been unable to walk since he was born. He was born lame. He is now over 40 years old. So every day, his family and friends bring him to the temple gate and set him there so that he can beg for money. That was actually the only way he could make a living. I mean, there was no social security system. Uh, This was how he survived and lived, by begging for money. And face it, temple gate's a good place to beg. Uh, People walking in have religious thoughts on their minds. They're probably inclined to be a little more generous. And so this is a good place to ask people for money. But the point is, he was there every day, and everyone knew him as a man who had never been able to walk. He sees Peter and John coming toward the gate, and so he does what he always does. He asks them to give him money. 
Now here's where the story starts to look a little different. Peter and John look at him and tell him to look at them. Now if you've ever been around beggars, then you know that begging is usually a very impersonal thing. Uh, Begging is very common overseas, but increasingly I've noticed it's common on street corners in in this country. And generally what happens is if if a beggar asks for money, you don't look at them, you just sort of give them money and move, move quickly on. Instead, Peter and John look at him, tell him to look at them, They want to establish some kind of relationship with him, which already is is a bit weird. And then Peter says to the man one of the most famous lines in Scripture, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he doesn't just say it. He reaches down, grabs his hand, and pulls him up. Now face it, that could have ended very badly. If the miracle had not happened... He would have found himself struggling to hold a man up there. But Peter was confident in the power of God. The man was healed, and he stood up and walked. It was amazing. I mean, he is able to walk for the first time in his life. And he actually goes into the temple with them, we're told, walking and leaping and praising God. Uh, Obviously, this, um, this attracts a crowd. Because everybody there knows this guy, and they know he can't walk. And here he is, not just walking. I mean, he's making a scene because he's so happy to be, to be walking in that way into the temple. So a crowd gathers. Now, they're understandably astonished. And Peter, seeing the situation there, seizes the opportunity to share the gospel. And, and by the way, he doesn't do it in a way that's calculated to win friends and influence people. Uh, he makes it clear that these are the very people who are responsible for crucifying Jesus. But he preaches the gospel, and he challenges them to repent and believe. Well, this is making a scene. Crowds like this do not normally gather. People are going about the temple doing their business. So the temple authorities notice what's going on, and they come to check it out. These are politically sensitive days. They were worried about riots. Riots happen often, and riots often started in the temple. So they want to make sure that nothing bad is happening. Now, the temple was controlled at that time by a group in Judaism known as the Sadducees. Again, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard of the Sadducees before, and you may be aware of the fact that they were the sect of Judaism that denied there was such a thing as a resurrection from the dead. They controlled the Sanhedrin. They controlled the temple. They come up here, and now they hear a sort of double whammy. So Peter and John are proclaiming a resurrection from the dead, and they're proclaiming it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, a man they had just tried to get rid of. So they're annoyed. They are really not happy with them. They bring the local police along and have Peter and John arrested and thrown in jail overnight. The next day, the two guys are brought out and put on trial before the leadership of the nation, the Sanhedrin, again, a group controlled by the Sadducees. And once again, on trial... Peter and John seize the opportunity to share the gospel. And once again, not exactly calculated in terms to avoid offense. They declare that Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, whom they had crucified, whom God had raised from the dead, was the one through whom that miracle had happened. And Peter concluded with one of the great statements of gospel exclusivity. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now remember, they're on trial, and these men that they're talking to are their judges. 
the judges noted three things. First, they noted their boldness. That's kind of obvious. Uh, they particularly noticed, number two, that these were uneducated common men, not the sort of guys you would expect to be this bold in the presence of their rulers. But thirdly, and most importantly, what they noticed was that they'd been with Jesus. That was what characterized them above everything else. They had been with Jesus, so even though, humanly speaking, they were nobody, they boldly proclaimed the gospel right to their judges, who were the leaders of their nation. Well, the leadership was in a quandary. They were not happy with Peter and John. That's putting it mildly. But they couldn't do anything about it. A miracle had happened, and everyone in town knew it. There was no way to get around the facts. Everyone knew the man had been unable to walk his entire life. Everyone knew that he was now walking and leaping and praising God. And everyone knew that Peter and John were somehow involved in it. So there was no way they could pretend it didn't happen. They commanded them then never to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus ever again. And once again, Peter, inspired by God, uttered a famous line. He said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Kind of a loaded statement. But as for us, we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. So the leaders threaten them some more, but eventually have to let them go. Uh, when they're released, they gather their Christian friends, report on what's happened to them, and then go into the prayer meeting that we just read about. And they pray that God would make them even bolder, a prayer that God answered in a massive way. So, first of all, what do we gather from the story, from the setting? First of all, I want you to see that the apostles seized every opportunity to proclaim the gospel, including opportunities that might not have looked particularly opportune to them. They had the opportunity to do a good deed to a beggar, and they did it. But they didn't just heal the man and then quietly walk away. They healed the man, and then when a crowd gathered, they proclaimed Jesus to those who had come to see what had happened. And they did so boldly with words. Now, there's a statement that's, that floats around. Uh, it's, it's attributed to Francis of Assisi. And I'll be honest, I hate it. I, I genuinely despise this statement. The statement is, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. You've probably heard it before. Well, the best re uh, retort to that that I've ever heard came from the, that great uh, source of theological depth, the Babylon Bee, uh, which uh, pastor resolves to feed the hungry at all times and when necessary to use food. <laughs> the one makes as much sense as the other. You can just as easily feed the hungry without food as you can preach the gospel without words. The gospel is words. A simple act of kindness is not the gospel. You have not witnessed yet if you have just witnessed by your deeds. Now your life should back up your witness. Absolutely. But Jesus is the word of God made flesh, and the gospel is the word about salvation in Jesus that must be expressed in words or evangelism has not taken place. So these certainly were men who wanted to do good deeds for people, but they were never content to do good deeds and just leave it at that. We have to proclaim the gospel in words with a challenge to repent. But you'll also notice that in addition to seizing the very favorable opportunity of a crowd gathering to, to see a miracle, they also seized the very difficult opportunity of being put on trial. Uh, the intention of the trial is to silence them. The intention is to intimidate them into shutting up. To it was designed to make them cease and desist. 
And they were on trial before the very men who not too long before had Jesus put to death. So as far as these guys knew, they might be on trial for their lives as well. But they seized that as an opportunity to share the gospel. So it would seem that they only shared the gospel under two sets of circumstances. When it was convenient and when it wasn't. When it was safe and when it was dangerous. That was their habitual lifestyle. They were in the habit of talking about Jesus and salvation in his name. In fact, they said, we can't shut up. We can't stop speaking. So we see in the apostles an example of seizing every opportunity for talking about Christ. Second, we see in this, in this scenario a, a pattern that will prove to be common. Gospel proclamation arouses opposition. That is normal. It will always be the case. So if you think, and, and maybe you just think it unconsciously, but if you think, I'm not going to do it if it's going to cause a problem. I'm not going to do it if somebody's going to get upset. Then you're not going to do it at all. Because it's normal for the gospel to make people unhappy. The gospel, after all, is bad news before it's good news. Now, the gospel is, in fact, the greatest blow to our self-esteem in telling us that we are so bad that it took the murder of God incarnate to save us and that we can't save ourselves. Now, this is the first time the apostles are arrested. It will not be the last. Many more will follow. This time they got off light. They were threatened and warned, but then released. Next time, they're going to be beaten. And it gets even more difficult after that, until by the end of the, of the time of the apostles, all of them, except for John, had been martyred for the sake of the gospel. It's interesting that Peter, the guy at sort of at the heart of the story, went on to write 1 Peter, most of which is about how Christians should respond to suffering and persecution. And he says in it, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, it's not strange at all to suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is normal. And this says to us that if we are facing no opposition, that's actually the weird thing. That's actually the exception to the norm in the Christian life. If we're not arousing any opposition from the world, we're out of step with the normal Christian life. So we've seen here then that the apostles seized every opportunity to proclaim the gospel. The gospel aroused opposition as it normally does. And they responded then by doing two things. They prayed and then they shared the gospel. And I want us to look now at the elements of their prayer. First of all, as we look at what we read earlier at, at this prayer, you will notice that they began by focusing on God. Because their prayer reflected their theology... And their theology itself shaped the way that they conducted their ministry. They began with God, with who he is and what he's done. They specifically begin with the awesome, sovereign power of God. They acknowledge God as the creator, the one who made everything, and the one who is sovereign over all. And that's a really good perspective to have. I mean, think about it. They have just been in front of a group of men who regard themselves as big stuff. The leaders of their nation considered themselves the most important people around. And they were wielding authority to threaten these men. And so, having come from those guys, they talked to somebody who is the sovereign Lord who created heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, who do you actually want to listen to? A mere earthly ruler or the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them? 
God is a lot bigger, he's a lot more powerful, and he's a lot more important than anyone else. And it helps for us to focus our attention on that reality. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we gather every week in church. It's basically a sanity check. It's a reality check. We've spent the week out in the world which is shouting nonsense to us that all sorts of other things matter. And you come here to remind yourself that no, there is one who matters and everything else falls under him. So they focus on God and who he is in his power and they also remind themselves that God has revealed truth. He spoke through his servant David. He reveals scripture through his Holy Spirit. He is the God specifically in the Old Testament context quoted here, Psalm 2, which was read to us earlier in this service, is sovereign over history, even over the acts of his enemies. Psalm 2 is a psalm both about the rebellion of humanity against God and the futility of that rebellion because God is enthroned in heaven. God is a greater power and a higher authority than any political party, any military force, or any country on earth. He is the one who finally decides what happens. So the rebellion of humanity against God is ultimately futile. In fact, the greatest crime that has ever been committed in human history was God became a man in the person of Jesus, and we as a race murdered him. And God took that under his sovereign power and used that, the worst thing we had done, to accomplish the greatest good for us, which is to use it for our salvation. So people like Pontius Pilate and the chief priests may have thought they were the ones in charge of the death of Jesus. They may have thought that event was a demonstration of their control. And that thought that they were the ones in charge was probably on everyone else's minds when these two men were on trial before them. But the disciples knew that the story was actually completely different. That God was the one in control. God is sovereign. And confidence in that sovereignty is the bedrock foundation of evangelistic boldness. Let me say it again. If you only remember one thing from this morning, remember this. Confidence in the omnipotent sovereignty of God is the essential foundation of evangelistic boldness. I can share the gospel with someone because I believe that God is sovereign. I can engage in God's mission because I believe that God is sovereign. I can work in parts of the world as I have that are violently opposed to the gospel because I believe that God is sovereign. In fact, I can take my family to places that the State Department say no one should ever go to because I believe that God is sovereign. And he's sovereign in every possible way. He's sovereign over human rulers and governments who may not want me to be there. He's sovereign over the salvation of people who are dead in sin and dead set against the gospel. He is sovereign to take dead people and make them alive in Christ. Were he not thus sovereign, no one could be saved. And he is sovereign to break down the barriers that now stand against people even hearing the gospel, much less believing it. Now it's true that people around the world are resistant to the gospel of Jesus. But so were you and I. I mean, you and I were also once dead in our trespasses and sins. And my observation is there are not degrees of dead. Dead's dead. And a dead nominal Christian American is just as dead as a dead Central Asian who has never heard the name of Jesus in his life. It takes the same miracle to raise us as it did to raise them, and he's as powerful to save there as he is here. God is sovereign. 
And you and I were saved because God, in His majestic sovereignty, when we were running away from Him, reached down and grabbed us and redeemed us and made us alive in Christ. And He is in the business of doing that everywhere in the world. So, sovereignty of God emboldens us to preach the gospel. It even emboldens us to preach the gospel to people like the Sanhedrin. I mean, Peter and John could share the good news of Jesus with the very people who would kill Jesus because no one is outside the power of God to save. No one at all. And because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, his spirit accompanies the proclamation of it and saves sinners through it. It doesn't matter how great the opposition may be. God is going to accomplish his purpose of redeeming a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He's going to do that here. And he's going to do that in the heart of the Muslim world where I have worked. And he's going to do that everywhere. Because he's that kind of God and he has that kind of power. So far from a conviction that God is sovereign, both in the affairs of history and in the salvation of sinners, being a deterrent to missions and evangelism, it's the only foundation for them. And apart from that, none of us would have the courage to do it. Now, it's important to keep in mind, though, that the fact that God is in control of everything does not mean that he will necessarily keep bad things from happening to me. But he does give me confidence to know that even if the bad things do happen to me, they are solidly within his good purposes for me and will ultimately turn out for my good and his glory, even if the my good part means that he takes me home to be with him in heaven. He is sovereign in all situations, and his sovereignty makes me bold to go wherever he calls me to go and share the gospel in all situations. So in their prayer, they begin with the sovereign power of God and base their appeal for boldness on that power. Second, notice that they interpret what they've just gone through in the light of God's word. Now, to me, it's kind of impressive that in the middle of prayer, after they've just been threatened, they can quote extensively from scripture, which means they had it memorized, which is a really good thing to do. Because there are many times where you're in a situation where you can't say, hold on, I need to go to my concordance app and look this up. You just, you just need it on the tip of your tongue, which means you need it in your heart. They did. They had scripture there. And they could quote it extensively in their prayer. And they evaluated their situation in light of the scripture that they knew. Humanly speaking, what had just happened looked bad. Christian movement is new. It's young. And already they are experiencing persecution. Already the authorities are saying, you got to shut this thing down. Humanly speaking, that's discouraging. But from the point of view of God's word, this was exactly what they should expect. They recognized that it was predicted in the Old Testament that people would rise up against God's anointed. And anointed just means Messiah. And this was exactly what had happened. So they had a biblical perspective on opposition and suffering, and they acted and reacted accordingly, according to what they knew God's word said. Our tendency, unfortunately is to evaluate things in line with the cultural standards we have grown up with. And we, who live in the West in particular, have grown up with a pervasively unbiblical worldview. We have grown up with this unspoken conviction that we are somehow entitled to safety, health, comfort, and convenience. When we went to the field, I cannot tell you how many people, when they heard where we were going, said, but isn't it dangerous there? As though that somehow was the trump card to get out of obeying the word of God. If it's dangerous, God would never call me to do it. Well, tell that to the apostles. 
in reality, you know what we're entitled to? We're entitled to hell. That's it. Fairness is exhausted by eternal condemnation in hell. That's what every one of us deserves. God has graciously gifted us with eternal life when we didn't deserve it. And that means that nothing can separate us from him, and we will spend eternity with him in infinite glory and joy, which we thoroughly don't deserve. And now we have the privilege of representing Christ in the world, which means we have the privilege of suffering with him and for him. We get the honor of bearing reproach for his name. That's a biblical set of entitlements and privileges. The world teaches us the opposite and constantly tries to convince us of the opposite. So we need to be careful to think biblically as we experience the opposition of the world. It's normal, so be content. In fact, be joyful. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Far from being a source of discouragement, in many ways, it can let us know we're on track. Um, I had a, a professor who served many decades uh, himself in Central Asia who used to say that he, didn't re he wasn't really sure he was doing what God wanted him to do until the opposition began. That showed him that Satan was finally troubled by what he was doing. So, the biblical perspective is opposition is normal. Don't get discouraged by it. Instead, rejoice that you have been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. That's what they prayed. They recognized in their prayer that Scripture had said what you're experiencing is exactly what you should have expected. Now, third, I'm just going to touch, touch on this briefly, but they left their persecutors in God's hands. It's funny. You read that and say, look on their threats, and how would you fill in the rest of that sentence? Now, if... In a normal situation, I'm likely to say, look on their threats and get me out of this. Now, if I'm feeling particularly spiritual, I'll say, Lord, please save them and get me out of this. If I'm feeling in a more normal mood, I may go to some of the particularly uh, zinger uh, psalms and say, Lord, destroy them in your righteousness. Um, they don't do any of that. They don't say, look on their threats and punish them. They don't even say, look on their threats and protect us from them. They just say, look on their threats and grant us boldness. So remembering that scripture nowhere guarantees our safety. Uh, we have no promise that God will physically protect us. And that's demonstrated by the fact that most of the apostles were martyred. And we ourselves have friends who have died for the gospel. Um, at, at our uh, training center, we have a wall with plaques of names of people in our organization who have died for the gospel uh, overseas in the last 177 years. And there's over 300 names on that wall. And I know most of the people in the last three columns. But it's worth it. That's the key. It's worth it. And what these people are saying is, look on their threats, and then they're not concerned about God necessarily stopping those threats from being carried out. They say, look on their threats and give us boldness. We're leaving the folks themselves in your hands. Notice what's going on. But what God does to their enemies is left unspoken in God's hands. Now, I think it is appropriate for us to pray specifically for our persecutors. But we're supposed to pray that God would bless them. In fact, we're supposed to pray that God would save them. I hope that when you think about people like the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, your instinct is to pray that God would save them. I prayed for the salvation of Osama bin Laden almost every day until the day we'd heard that he had died. And I, pray, I hope that you also would pray that God would convert and save people like that. In fact, to bring it a little closer to home, 
I pray, I hope, that you will ask God to convert and save whoever you're mad at right now in American politics. And face it, you're mad at people. Everybody's mad at somebody. Uh, this is like the, 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 the couple of years to be mad. It's, it's, we all collectively lost our minds, and we're all just mad. And so you're mad at somebody. I hope what that does is provoke you to pray for their salvation, not pray that the Lord would smite them. Now, it doesn't mean that we should never pray for protection for ourselves or others. A few chapters on in Acts 12, the believers did exactly that when Peter had been arrested and was about to be brought out to be executed. Uh, they prayed for his deliverance, and, and God delivered him. Uh, but it's telling to me that regarding themselves in this setting, their instinct wasn't to pray for their own deliverance. It was to pray that God would make them bold. We should pray not for what God does to them, but what God does in us and in them. What God does with our persecutors, other than being merciful to them, as Jesus asked on the cross, is not our primary concern. Fourth then, what they asked for was boldness. They asked boldness to share the gospel, whatever the, the consequences. they just begun to experience difficulty, and they asked for boldness to share the gospel in the face of that difficulty. How can they do that? They can do it because it's a reflection of their transformed value system. What do they value? Clearly, they value the gospel. And they value the gospel more than their own comfort, their own convenience, and even their own safety. And that is the normal Christian value system. It is normal, biblically, for a disciple of Jesus to have a transformed value system in which God and the things of God are more important to us than all the things that we will lose. I mean, I hope you know you're going to die unless Jesus comes back first. You're going to leave everything behind, including life. Those are things you're going to lose anyway. The things that we value the most are that which we will never lose, which is God and his gospel. So, the situation does arouse in them an appropriate fear, but it's not the fear of persecution. It's the fear of being silenced. What they fear is that they'll be intimidated by these threats into doing what they've been told, which is to stop preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. So they respond to this by praying, Lord, don't let this silence us. Now they do ask for miracles. But these are not miracles that will protect or promote them, but rather miracles that will display the power and character of God and promote the spread of the gospel. Their passion was the fame of Jesus and the advance of good news about him, and the cost to them didn't matter. He answered this by giving them boldness, and they did speak the word of God boldly. The building was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out and evangelized even more. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's interesting, over and over again, as you read through the New Testament, you see this connection between the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not given to me primarily to make me feel good. The Holy Spirit is most certainly not given to me to give me gifts that I can use to promote or exalt myself over other people. The Holy Spirit is given to us to remake us in the image of Jesus, to give us power in service to the body of Christ, and to give us power to proclaim the good news of Christ. A uh, British scholar named, named Michael Green said, the comforter is not given to comfort us. The comforter is given to us to make us missionaries. And that's what happened here. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the result is boldness. So this is one of the ways you know if someone is, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, 
You know it in part by whether or not they are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, but you also know it by whether or not the gospel is spilling out of them as a result of the presence of the Spirit of God in them. So, let's bring this home now. How do we apply this here now in this situation, the situation you guys are living in here in Florida? First of all, I've been talking about evangelism and the apostles as models of evangelism that kind of presupposes that you yourself have embraced the gospel. And in a room this size, I can't assume that's true. There are likely to be some people here who have not yet recognized themselves as sinners who need a savior. So I want to just briefly remind you of the gospel message. The gospel message is that there is in fact a God who is holy and awesome, who owns and rules everything, and to whom every person must give account. He's the judge of the universe, and he will be your judge. And he knows everything down to the most secret thoughts of your heart. All of us are sinners. We've all rebelled against God. And sometimes we've rebelled against God in blatantly wicked ways, but sometimes we've rebelled against God in respectable attempts to be good or good enough apart from him. We've done nothing, though, to deserve anything other than condemnation from his hands. But the gospel is the good news that this holy God is also a merciful and gracious God. He looked on us in our rebellion, and rather than giving us what we deserve, which is eternal condemnation, he chose to redeem people for himself by becoming a man in the person of Jesus. True God and true man who lived the perfect life we should have lived as our substitute. And then as our substitute died the death we deserve to die for our rebellion, taking on himself the wrath that our sin deserved and paying the penalty we owed for our disobedience. And he exchanged his righteousness for our sin so that our sin fell on him and his righteousness is now offered as a free gift to everyone who will trust in him. So the challenge to everyone now is to repent of your rebellion against God, to turn back from going your own way. And trust in the righteousness of Jesus alone to make you right with God. Entrusting all that you are and all that you have to him completely and forever. That's the gospel message. And if you have never repented and believed in Jesus for the sake of your own soul, I plead with you to do so now. And if this is something that you have never done and need to do, there's plenty of people in this room who can talk to you after the service. But most of the people in this room, I would assume, knowing what I know about this church, have embraced the gospel. And so what I would have you to note from this text is that ordinary people can be effective evangelists. Don't think, I can't do that. If there were two men least likely to be nominated for evangelistic leader of the year, it would have been Peter and John. They were ordinary, uneducated men from the backwater province of Galilee. What made them different? They'd been with Jesus. That was it only distinction that turned them into powerful proclaimers of the gospel. So don't think I can't do this. Well, as a matter of fact, in yourself, you can't. But that's irrelevant. Uh, Think about Moses, okay? Go go back to the Old Testament. You guys have been in uh, the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with the setting here. God told Moses, a wanted man, to go back to the place where he was wanted, confront the most powerful ruler on earth, and tell him to let all of his slaves go free. Not surprisingly, Moses' question was, who am I to do that? Now, if God had been a 21st century therapist, he would probably have given him a pep talk 
to boost his self-esteem, reminded him of all the advantages he had from his upbringing in Pharaoh's court, and then told him, I believe in you. You've got this. Uh, God didn't. As a matter of fact, God's answer to Moses actually says nothing about Moses at all. Moses asked, who am I? God answered, I'll be with you. In other words, it just doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter in the slightest. Because whether you're massively inadequate or just massively inadequate, which are the two options for any of us, God is massively adequate, completely adequate. Him being with us is the game changer. Who I am is irrelevant. Who he is is the one thing that matters. And what did Jesus promise at the end of the Great Commission? He said, I'll be with you always to the end of the age, precisely in the context of sharing the gospel and making disciples of all the nations. Ordinary people can be effective evangelists because what it takes is not in us, it's Jesus. And that's precisely who he is to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So don't look to your own inadequacy other than than to let that inadequacy drive you to dependence on Christ. He has the power to use you to lead others to faith in Christ. So the big application from this text is to look for and seize opportunities to share the gospel. It probably won't happen if you're not looking for it because because you probably have opportunities all the time that you miss. God throws things our way constantly and we don't even notice them. But remember the kinds of opportunities that the apostles seized. Convenient ones and inconvenient ones. Ones that felt natural and ones that felt scary. Peter and John after the miracle and then Peter and John went on trial. Now as a church I know that you have a very high view of the gospel. You believe it's central to your lives. You believe that it is, it is powerful to save. And you also believe in its exclusivity. In other words, you believe on the basis of the clear teaching of Scripture that no one has a chance of escaping eternal judgment apart from hearing and believing the gospel. As Peter said, there is no other name by which we must be saved. And you have a high view of the power of God. You believe that He is mighty to save. But if we are not looking for and seizing opportunities to proclaim the gospel, we're actually belying our convictions. And so I encourage you to get in the habit of looking for chances to talk about Christ. Now this fits into a larger structure of of God's plan. The apostles were told to go and make disciples of all nations. And as you read through the book of Acts, you even see sort of the, the blueprint for it. They were told to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're still in in the Jerusalem phase of the thing here. But as you keep reading through the book of Acts, what you'll see is that what the apostles would do is go somewhere, plant a church, a healthy local church, and then move on. They wouldn't necessarily stay and personally evangelize everybody there. They planted a church and moved on. And the reason that could work is that the normal thing that a church does is share the gospel with the people around it. The church is God's chosen instrument to evangelize the world. And it evangelizes the world where it is, and then it sends people to the ends of the earth to evangelize where it's not. So this is our responsibility where we live, even as we also pour effort into getting the gospel where it's not yet. Next, I would would urge you, don't let opposition deter you from speaking. Just remember that it's the normal experience of the early church, and it's increasingly going to be the experience here as well. 
Uh, one advantage of leaving the United States and only coming back periodically is that you can see how much things have changed. And this is a very different country than the one I left at the beginning of the 90s. And it's even more of a different country than the one that I knew as a kid in the 50s and 60s. And, and yes, I am that old. Um, we increasingly see Western society going from amused tolerance for privatized faith to active hostility against Christianity. We are now regarded as evil and immoral by a significant part of society and many of those who are actually in control. And so it's rapidly going from mere criticism or ridicule against Christian faith to people losing their jobs and the power of the state being used against us. Don't let it stop you. One of the things we have seen in the high persecution environments that I have worked in for most of my adult life is that the fear of persecution stops people from witnessing more than the experience does. In other words, if people are afraid it's going to come, they, they want to keep, keep it away so that they stay silent. Once it starts, it's kind of like, okay, we've crossed the line. There it is. What do we have to lose? Yeah, at, at most our lives. You know, it's nothing. I'm going to heaven. So I have seen believers who have been persecuted become vastly more bold than those who are merely afraid of it. I would encourage you just to skip that first stage. Just skip the, I'm afraid it's going to happen, so I'm going to stay silent. I mean, eventually, sorry, it's going to happen anyway. So just go ahead and skip that and be bold. Don't let fear stop you. The enemy wins when that happens. The persecution may very well come, but if it does, recognize that the worst thing that can happen to you, which is unlikely to be happening in this country right now, is to send you to Jesus. I would also point to you... In a, the example of Peter and John as those who refused to water down the message in order to avoid giving offense. I mean, they were quite bold in who Jesus was, and that he was the Messiah, and that he had been, risen from, been raised from the dead. They could not have pushed more buttons if they tried. And not because they were after pushing buttons, they just wanted to be clear on the essentials of the gospel. So we don't intentionally try to be offensive. Please don't do that. Be winsome. Be gracious. But just don't leave something out because it's going to offend people. If you do, you will end up leaving essentials of the gospel out. Don't water down the reality of human sinfulness. Don't shy away from our accountability to God for every thought, word, and deed. Don't compromise the absolute truth and universal authority of God's law. Don't water down aspects of God's law that are unpopular in our culture, which is going to become more and more as the days go by. And don't water down the exclusivity of the gospel. If you believe in the power of God to save, you don't need to shave off the uncomfortable bits of the gospel. But my final application of this text to you is this. Pray as the apostles prayed. Pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus. It's amazing how often God answers that prayer. I would encourage you, in fact, to look at your daily prayer time and if you don't have one, get one today and keep it up every day till you see Jesus face to face. And as you pray every day, I would encourage you to pray this. Pray, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone today. And then pray, God, give me the alertness to recognize the opportunity when it comes my way and give me the boldness to seize that opportunity. I would encourage you, in fact, to make a list of individual lost people you know and pray for them that God would save them and pray also that God would give you the opportunity to share the gospel with them. It's something we did on the field. At any given time, every one of our workers 
had to have at least five people that they knew who were non-believers that they were praying daily for that God would open their hearts to the gospel and they'd have the opportunity to share with them. And you would be amazed at how often that prayer was answered. Ask God to make your number one fear the fear of being silenced. My prayer for you as a church is that it would not be possible for someone to know a member of this church without knowing the gospel. Now, you might have thought, this guy's, you know, from the International Mission Board. We thought he was going to preach a mission sermon. Well, this is. And the reason it is is that we believe that, that proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, and training up leaders for those churches, that is the missionary task. And it starts with sharing the gospel. And we also believe that if you're not doing it here, you will never do it somewhere else. One of the things that we require of our missionary candidates is that they keep a log of their evangelism. Not because we're looking for scalps, but simply because we want to see, is this part of your lifestyle? And that's the prerequisite for missionary service. And so I want to see this church take this good news beyond here to places where the gospel is far less known. Uh, just to give you a, a sense of the disparity of lostness in various places. Yes, there's a lot of lost people here. There's also a lot of Christians here. Uh, when I worked in Central Asia, we had three, about 360 million Muslims. And when I arrived, among those 360 million Muslims, as best as we can tell, there were 4,000 Christians. So think about that number. 4,000 Christians among 360 million Muslims. The number is now up to almost a, a quarter of a million among 360 million, which is huge growth, but it still means that that area is less than one-tenth of one percent evangelized. So my encouragement to you is share the gospel here. Share it actively here. Get yourself in the habit of sharing the gospel, but then also ask yourself, how can we as a church reach beyond here to places where the gospel is even less known so that you can fulfill the whole plan that's laid out in the book of Acts, which is not just for Jerusalem to be evangelized, but Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Let's pray.